Welcome to another episode of Top Class with me, Duncan Crawford, the podcast where we talk about all things education. Today, we're talking about micro-credentials, bite-sized qualifications designed to help people demonstrate they have certain skills or experience, such as a computing or a management course. The number of micro-credentials being offered has shot up in recent years, with millions of people taking them. So, Are they poised to go mainstream worldwide to fill in gaps from what's offered by higher education systems, or are they more likely to remain a more niche product? I'm glad to say I'm joined by Dr. Monique Oshatelu, founder and data strategist of data consultancy firm Etan, and Shizuka Katu, an analyst from the OECD's higher education policy team. Thank you both for joining us. Shizuka, let's start with you. Talk us through what a micro-credential is, how they work. I mean, are they easy to define or not? Sure. Micro-credentials are learning programs that have three main features. First, shorter and smaller in volume compared to traditional degree programs. Some of them can be completed in a few hours and others can be done in a year. And the second feature is that they are more targeted in terms of skills and content. Many of them focus on areas where labor market shortage is high, such as IT and health. And lastly, they are more flexible in delivery. Many of them are offered online, self-paced programs. Monique, you're in the US. Uh, How are they used there? What motivates people to take one of these micro-credential courses? Sure. So in the U.S., we have kind of a different approach with our micro-credentials or what we like to refer to as short-term programs. And we define those as programs that take less than a year to complete. What we actually find here in the the U.S. as opposed to other highly economically developed countries is that our short-term programs are happening at the sub-baccalaureate level. Right. And so when you think about these credentials, you tend to think about them being more supplemental education for an associate's or a bachelor's. But here about seven in 10 Americans get this at a sub-baccalaureate level. And for many of them, this is their highest level of education. And so while, you know, federal policymakers, state policymakers are trying to understand, you know, everyone can't do a four year degree. Some students need um, quick pathways to earn um, jobs and wages. Uh, but it's really important to make sure that there are pathways and, and insight on how they can leverage it to make family sustaining wages, which we'll talk about later. But that just kind of gives you an oversight of what it looks like here in the U.S. Understood. So on paper, these courses are being sold as being more flexible, often shorter and inexpensive ways of learning. Monique, I know you do have some reservations about these courses and their overall benefits, but to focus on the positives for a minute... How are they helping or benefiting the people who take them? So here in the U.S., we find that micro-credentials that we refer to as short-term programs, they are effective in helping graduates enter into a new career path or if they're looking to upskill. And so we find that to be true. We also find that specific industries actually do have good labor market outcomes in regards to earnings, right? And so we find that that happens to be concentrated more so in construction, trades, welding, 
those types of fields. And so we do find that. But then on the back end, <laughs> I know you asked for positive, but what we really do know is that not all short-term credentials are, are equal and not everyone experiences those short-term credentials equally. So while there are some positive earnings, um, such as folks do see an increase in earnings, but those increase in earnings actually begin to level out after seven years compared to an associate or bachelor's degree. So it's mixed, not completely perfect uh, scenario, um, but that just kind of gives you a highlight of some of those positive outcomes. Do all employers in the US recognize micro-credentials now or not? That's a really good question. <clears throat> so I think part of the issue is along colleges, and more specifically our community college sector is really focused on the vocational providings. The question comes along the community colleges providing programs that employers want. And so it's making sure that you have that match, that the programs that they're offering, that employers are ready to hire. But even more so, it's important to make sure that the programs these colleges are offering are in family-sustaining wages. And so that's where that disconnect can come when we're talking about the value and is it a signaling market um, and is it signaling value in the market? You mentioning value in the market. I mean, OEC research just in terms of general education systems often highlighting where they're struggling. And one of the issues is that at the end of the process, student graduates are sometimes unable to find good entry level jobs. At the same time, employers can be unhappy about the quality of workers available to them. So, Shizuka, I guess I'll ask you, does that show that micro-credentials are needed, even if there are concerns about the impact and effectiveness of them? Yes, yes, exactly. So it's a very good point. And actually, currently, micro-credentials are used to top up on top of a degree program. So somebody with a high education degree who studied sociology or history they sometimes want to change a field of job and then they take a short-term credential, micro-credential, to, to top up skills such as like IT-related skills or it could be green skills. Uh, so they top up skills that are highly demanded in the labor market and then get the job that may pay them a better salary or that may interest them more than their current job. So that's how micro-credentials are used Amik, I'm wondering if you, I guess, agree with Suzuka there that you know, these types of courses, they're top-ups often, so they're vital because in some ways education systems are not matching the needs of all of the elements of job markets. Oh, yes. I Honestly, I agree on that regard. And I feel like higher education is not by itself as a silo the solution to that, right? But it's important that they act in partnership with employers to make sure that there is alignment between uh, program offerings and what employers are looking for. You, you mentioned problems earlier, Monique, with micro-credentials as you see them. Uh, plenty of other people have raised concerns as well for a variety of reasons. Um Talk us through some of them in more detail you, you know, about disadvantaged backgrounds, for example. Sure. So a lot of the research that I'll be referencing focuses more specifically on certificates. A lot of the research here in the U.S. focuses really on that. And what I'll say this is that a lot of it is national research. And when you begin to look at it specifically on state level and then even more uh, granular at a regional level, some of these outcomes that I'll talk about will differ. But on a more national landscape, what we find is that there is gender segregation uh, in that those 
occupations that are female dominated tend to have lower wages. For example, cosmetology and those in the healthcare system. I did a research study about two years ago that was really looking at programs that take fewer than 15 weeks to, to complete. And what I found is that female dominated um, occupations such as healthcare, they made up to $50,000 less in median earnings compared to those who got a certificate in construction trades, right? And so it's not just only based on gender, but there's also some discrepancies that even when you control, <laughs> when you control for the certificate that they're getting, the training that they have, women still make less than men when they get these certificates. We also find there's discrepancies along race, so where black and brown students, specifically black students, um, they tend to get the, they're the racial category that has the lowest wages when they get these short-term credentials. The research shows that for black students, specifically when we're talking about socioeconomic mobility, a program that's at least a year or longer actually shows more benefits in the labor market for those students. Students uh, of color, however, are more likely to enroll into these short-term programs here in the U.S., about one in three black and brown, and when I say black and brown, I'm referring to Latino students as well, um, about one in three black and brown students actually enroll in a certificate program compared to about one in five white students actually complete a certificate. And so what we see here is that there's almost this sifting and sorting that causes folks to question, are students choosing these programs that have lower labor market outcomes for them, or are programs that are highly concentrated with underrepresented students offering more programs that are going into lower wage jobs, right? And so it's really important to decipher and understand what is the behavior of students versus the institutions and what can we do to correct that? Because I do believe these micro-credentials are helpful um, on socioeconomic mobility when they're done well. Shizuka, I wonder what you think about what Monique said there, obviously raising a lot of issues. Yes, so we see the the same trend in OECD countries and actually also outside of the OECD countries. And uh, without any policy interventions, micro-credentials and other short-term credentials mainly benefit individuals coming from socio-economically advantaged backgrounds and therefore contributing to social reproduction and individuals with a high ed education degree and also those working for a large farm. And sometimes also, we also see that the younger learners benefit more than older learners. Let's say those above 45 uh, get less benefits, get, get less economic outcomes uh, from micro-credentials than the other, their peers. So... And that those who need micro-credential learning opportunities the most, like those who are employed or those with lower income, they are least likely to benefit from micro-credentials. When I say benefit, they are less likely to, first of all, enroll in these short-term credential programs, and then they are less likely to complete, and then they get less benefit or less outcomes uh, upon completion. So that's what we see in OECD countries, and then many governments are working to to intervene to to make sure that the micro credentials are accessible to all and benefit everybody. You say governments are taking actions to intervene. Could you outline some of the steps which are being taken? Yes. So there are a few things uh, governments and also uh, education and training institutions can do, but I can I'll just highlight two things. 
One is that the financial support. It's very important that the disadvantaged learners and workers can focus on learning without worrying about paying their rent or paying for their meal. And second is that the, they need information. Uh, they are often not aware that they need to reskill or upskill. And also they are not aware of all the learning opportunities available to them, often for free. So it's important that the, the governments and also counselors don't wait for them to come. They actively go to reach to these learners. So active outreach is also very important to engage these learners, connect them to quality learning opportunities. And we see that the Singapore, Singapore has a very good example. They have a very advanced lifelong learning system. It's called Skills Future Initiative. It's led by the government. And they make sure that the, all learners are accessible to different funding opportunities. And also they get all the information they need to find the program that meets their need the most. Monique, I see you're nodding your head at times there. Is some of the uh, actions being taken, which Azuka outlined, uh, tallying with what's happening in the U.S.? Yes, in regards to uh, federal conversations around funding, that's, that is very true. So that right now, there's some pending policy on the, on the federal level on whether to extend federal dollars to these very short-term programs. Right now, uh, students can receive federal grants and financial aid, but the program must be at least 15 weeks or more. And so they want to expand these programs with the understanding that all students can enroll in these programs. However, they do need that financial support. Some of that backlash, again, and, and some of the resistance, and my, my reasoning for hesitation is because there are so much discrepancies in outcomes for students. And without those guardrails and supports to make sure students understand how they can leverage this credential, my concerns is that these taxpayer dollars may not be put to good use. I'll say this reason. Uh, I did a research study about two, three years ago, um, five things policymakers should know about short-term programs. And we spoke with individuals and we did focus groups in programs that are fewer than 15 weeks. And what we actually found when we talked with students is they don't need financial support. What do they need? They said they were able to afford these programs just fine. What they do need is actual work experience. And what we find is a lot with these non-degree credentials here in the U.S., specifically with some of our community college programs, is that these programs are not affiliated with work experience opportunities, meaning co-ops, internships, hands-on experiences, where a lot of students have to take the responsibility to look for these work experience programs on their own. When we talk with the students, they felt that the certificate gave them paper to get the job, but it did not give them real life experience to know what to do and hit the ground running. And so that's why these work experience programs are super important. And when we look at the data and we disaggregate it by race, what we find is that there is also a racial gap in access to these work experience programs. And we find that black and brown students are participating in these work experience programs at lesser rates than their white peers. However, when we spoke with students, those who had the work experience programs, they felt that they were more prepared and they actually felt that it allowed them to get the job. It gave them a benefit in the market. And so we're really trying to understand, okay, if we want to expand federal dollars, state appropriations 
to these short-term programs to support our adult learners, especially our non-traditional underrepresented students, we have to make sure that we set them up for success and making sure they have access to work experience programs and other entities that will help them leverage their credentials so they can experience uh, those positive labor market outcomes and have socioeconomic mobility and access to that. Understood. I mean, both of you have now raised why they're potentially a force for good and also raised various concerns. Certainly some scholars have concerns. They say these courses reflect how higher education is increasingly sold as a commodity rather than a public good. I wonder, maybe Monique, with you first, would you agree or disagree with that kind of statement? I guess it's more of a blanket statement, so so I would disagree, and I I would say this. I would say that these micro-credentials or short-term programs are vocational-based, right? So students come in with the idea that they'll get this credential and then go into the labor market shortly after. And it takes a certain amount of intentionality and concerted effort to make sure students are able to leverage this. And so I think it's super important to have these alternative credentials for students to diversify learning opportunities. However, it's super important to make sure that they're high quality, affordable, and that these institutions and educational providers are held accountable um, in what they're doing with some of the federal funding uh, or state funding that they may be receiving uh, to, re- to, to support these students. Suzuka, I wonder what you think. I mean, whatever happened to learning just for the joy of learning? A lot of the conversation is defined about the end benefit in terms of a higher salary or, or, or a better job potentially. But whatever happened to just having further education to broaden your mind for the joy of learning? Um, yes, very good question. So supporting lifelong learning, uh, learning throughout life is one thing micro-credential is expected to play a role. So yes, learning for joy is also important. And, and actually, um, one of the, I wouldn't say micro-credentials, but the, one of the, the most popular short-term credentials focus on well-being and also some non-cognitive skills or social and emotional skills. So it's not just about um, cognitive skills or labor market relevant knowledge. It's also about uh, personality and then well-being. And sometimes also micro-credentials are expected to play a role to to encourage uh, civil engagement, active citizenship. So yes, micro-credentials are much more than just employability. I wonder then for lots of employers, is actually the issue something to do with uncertainties about the quality of the different credentials and whether or not that really equates to a degree in a, in the formal education system as historically we've known? So, yes, uh, I guess it's very particular to certificates in the U.S. And in general, we see that, but actually these, uh, so we see that the non-degree credentials are not yet um, substitu- substituting degree programs. So there are many studies on employers' recognitions, and then these studies shows that the employers still value degrees as a good signal of candidate skills. They think degrees are not perfect, but they still think they are better than some other um, signals. And also they value some other um, indicators such as work experience over short-term credentials. So at the moment, short-term credentials play 
a very limited role. Um, unfortunately, in hiring, in many cases, except some industries, and also in a recent study, uh, we learned that the many. It's a study in the U.S. done by Northeastern University, and we we learned that the majority of HR systems are not yet ready to take non-degree credentials and also skill data. Therefore. Uh, we are not yet ready to use non-degree credentials, micro credentials, to signal candidates' skills. So in this way,、uh, I can connect to the discussion on my stackability. And then at the moment, it is important that we ensure micro credentials are stackable, and the pathway to stack credentials are ensured for everybody. They are supported. They are all informed, and they are encouraged to get the degree to make sure that the, everybody gets benefits out of. These short-term credentials, especially disadvantaged learners. Coming back to the quality of certain micro-credential courses, Monique, in the US, is it a increasingly a big business, and is the quality always there? Oh yes, definitely. Higher education is an enterprise, and when we're talking about our non-degree credentials,、um, those accountability metrics are not necessarily in place.、Uh, but honestly, where we are right now on a federal landscape. We have what we call gainful employment, which is a potential to get community colleges accountable. Basically, what it states is that any student who is receiving federal financial aid, you have to make sure. Again, I know we talked about learning for the sake of learning, but according to this policy, it's this: you have to make sure that students are graduating. The metric that they're using for that is that of at least of a high school graduate. So, in essence. If you're getting federal financial aid to do these short-term programs or these non-degree credential programs, you have to make sure you're meeting the median median earnings of a high school graduate in your state. And so that is, you know, pending. They're having conversations about that on the executive level. But that's an example of some accountability metrics that's just really missing from the non-degree credential space. And to be honest, a lot of folks refer to this space as the wild, wild west because those accountability.、Um, Metrics are not there in the majority of countries.、Um, micro credential programs are fee based. However,、um, after the pandemic or during the pandemic, many governments launched government funded short term credential programs to support upskill, reskill, and also help laid off workers to get back to work.、Um, so these programs became free. Uh, in many cases, and now, so there are several programs you can do without paying fees, and many of them are high quality.、Um, it's also depending on how you define quality, but so yes, it's changing, and then many governments are also trying to find more sustainable way of funding these、um, learning programs. So, for example, in the UK. They are extending a student loan scheme to these modularized studies or short-term credentials.、Uh, they have an income contingent loan system, and they are extending this system to these short-term credentials, so that the learners can decide whether they want to do a long, long study、uh, at one time, or they take small credentials、uh, by like、uh, they take small credentials stack and a use loan in. Over the time of the, the over the course of life, so yes, it is changing. You mentioned the pandemic. How much of the increase in popularity is down 
to COVID-19, was it inevitable that micro-credentials were going to soar in popularity? Or is it COVID-19 and lockdowns which has brought into focus for many businesses the need for greater flexibility and more skills? I would say the the pandemic really um, boosted the interest in micro-credentials and also the number of offers and the number number of learners enrolling in these programs. So if we look at micro-credentials offered on digital learning platforms such as Coursera and edX, uh, we see that the, in, the number of micro-credentials offered on these platforms increased from around 600 in 2018 to 1,900 in 2022. So it's a huge increase and it really increased around the pandemic and it consist, consistently the the increased so yes the pandemic was one thing Monique when we're hearing about that explosive growth how do you maintain standards how do you do you need common standards to ensure the quality what what needs to happen good question um how do you maintain standards when it's happening at a rapid pace and when you're trying to go the route of lawmaking it's it's a very slower much slower pace and so what you end up happening is that there's a dysregulation of these programs because policy cannot keep up with the growth. Um, the growth, like Suzuka said, increased drastically here in the U- U.S. during the pandemic, and it continues to increase. And really what's happening is lawmakers are just trying to stay up to, bear, to, to, to it. And so a lot of the responsibility is on institutions to do a best service to their students and make sure that they're there to provide them with high quality learning opportunities, right? Making sure that they're affordable. A lot of the community colleges that do offer these non-degree credentials are affordable. Like I mentioned in our focus group, we found that cost in, excuse me, from our focus group, we found that tuition and fees were not so much of a barrier in these very short-term programs that are less than 15 weeks. And, and then it's also important to make sure students have clear pathways to understand what are potential job opportunities, what are pathways if they want to continue their education, and um, how they're able to leverage this in the market once they graduate. Do governments need to get involved to put in place national frameworks, you know, common standards, regulations, guidance to boost transparency? Is, do there need to be a lot more involvement? I would say yes. I would say, yes, here in the U.S., it is necessary, but it's very difficult. The sector that offers these non-degree credentials are primarily our community colleges. And community colleges are very difficult to regulate because they have so many factors that are impacting how they're able to provide education. A lot of times, community colleges are underfunded, they're understaffed, and they're are actually serving our most underrepresented students. So they're asked to do a lot with little. And so it's very difficult to do blanket policies, federal level, state level. However, there needs to be some form of accountability to ensure that these programs are serving our students well. Looking to the future, do you think micro-credentials are destined to remain supplements to mainstream education or could they become substitutes in the future, four degrees? I, I believe there'll be supplements. I feel like uh, formal degrees, they have a long-standing place in higher education where they're not going anywhere. I, I do believe they, they will be supplements. 
So on that note, we'll end the podcast. But thank you today to my two guests, Dr. Monique Ashetelu, founder and data strategist of data consultancy firm Etan, and the OECD's very own Suzuka Kato. Thank you both for your time. Uh, it is all we've got time for. I hope those listening have learned at least something about micro-credentials. Uh, maybe you're now inspired to take a micro-credential course yourself. Uh, Monique, if you were to take a micro-credential course, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. Uh, machine learning. I think that would be fun. Now, that would be a nightmare in my case. And uh, Shizuka, <laughs> machine learning for you or a different micro-credential? Um, data science, but that's also a kind of like... <laughs> Boring answer. We see that the micro-credentials in the field of IT and um, deliver highest benefits, so that's why we go for <laughs> these, I guess. How to cook a curry is probably the best micro-credential course I'd take, if it's available. Um, <laughs> if you want to know more about this subject, then please do check out the OECD report called Micro-Credentials for Lifelong Learning and Employability. There's also loads more to check out on the OECD website as well. Thanks again to my guests and to those listening. I hope you can join us again for another episode of Top Class soon.